0: Ladies and gentlemen, I know what you're thinking. No intro song? What's going on? Well, if you're here because you think this is the latest episode, this is actually part two of our latest episode. So if you have not listened to episode 11, Parasite Part 1, go ahead and put this on hold, hop over there, and that is the first half. We could not squeeze it all into one reasonably lengthed, episode. So instead, we split it up into two. So be sure you listen to Parasite Part 1 before jumping into this episode here. And yes, no intro song. I wanted it to sound different so it would catch your attention. We are going to dive right in. So if you've already checked out Part 1, you're in the right place. If not, go do that first and then come back here. We are so excited to have you. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy the conclusion, the epic conclusion, of our deep dive into the film Parasite. As always, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. The next little metaphor part that is absolutely worth mentioning, because for many people, this is the main point of this movie, which is the idea of this class divide and a socioeconomic commentary, and that is the, the, the amount of levels in this film, and I mean that very literally. I mean the hills mm-hmm. and the stairs and the and the tables and, and just sort of all of it. You know, the part of the film that's most widely discussed is this clear commentary on the class division and the stark contrast between those who have an abundance and those who have almost nothing, and as Bong described his film *Snowpiercer* as a hallway movie, he's referred to *Parasite* as his stairway movie. So it's mm. it's very obviously an upstairs downstairs commentary, and, and this permeates almost every layer of the film. And like I was just saying, especially the visuals. Right? There's the obvious from the start where we see the complete opposite ends of the spectrum that are the Kims and the Parks, where the Kims live in this basement apartment, and the Parks live up on this beautiful hill, and the sun beats down, and you know the Kims are being fumigated while the Parks are just drinking in the sun rays in their very light, beautiful home.
1: (laughs) It's like they, it's not even a full basement. So it's like almost insult to injury. It's like this partial basement, right? Where it's like, it's like we're slightly above ground. We're slightly doing okay. Like we're probably better than someone who lives in a full basement. But even within their partial basement, their eating area and their sleeping area is lower than their toilet like right. they have to climb up steps to use the bathroom. Right. And people outside use their windows as a bathroom.
0: They so, literally like, get pissed on every yeah. day. Right.
1: They have this semblance like that we're 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 doing okay. We've got our heads above ground, but they're still below shit. <laughs> and like you said juxtapose that with and Kevin notices it the, the first time he goes to the Park's house. He goes through this gate and it's this completely different world this gated house with this beautiful landscape and you can see the sun and you see the city off in the distance but it's like once you go through that gate off the street you might you could be anywhere in the world um, you're m- m- worlds away from their you know bottom of the the hill basement um, apartment
0: oh yeah I and- talk about the toilet but also like the the Kims do everything on the ground they eat on the ground they sit on the ground whereas the parks like sit in chairs they're always higher. They're always yep. in some way, shape, or form above them, right? There's even a more obvious depiction of this divide once we know that Moon Guang, the, the housekeeper, her husband, is actually living in the sub basement of the park house. So we see the park's living up on the hill, the Kims live in a, in a pseudo basement apartment. But the housekeeper's husband doesn't even live in the basement of the park house, right? The basement is sort of the cellar where they store some food and all this kind of stuff. He lives two levels below that in this sub-basement bunker that is even further down, even lower than the depths of where the Kims live.
1: And it's something we were explained to be that a lot of rich... Um, families had installed in their houses as like a panic room.
0: Right. In Um, case there's like a bombing or something from North Korea or something.
1: Yeah. And you know, just civil unrest, whatever. Um, But this, this room exists and the parks don't know about it. Um, But when this is revealed, this was the last time where I was like, finally, this is it. This is the parasite. (laughs) It lives in the basement and the housekeeper has been taking care of the parasite and she's going to open it up and like, the parasite's going to come out. And so when they went down into this dark sub has got some twisty, turny hallways, I was like, here we go. Rest of the movie's just bloodbath. This parasite's going to eat everybody. Nope. Uh, and he's down there for stretches at a time. Oh, yeah. He, we see later on that he gets some, you know, fresh air. But he's down there for... God knows how long. I mean, it seems like the mom maybe doesn't necessarily leave that often. It seems like there's always maybe somebody in the house. Um, the family unit of the, the, the parks doesn't necessarily seem like the closest family in the world. So I can't imagine there's many times where they're all four of them are out of the house.
2: Yeah, well, even the barrier between the kitchen and then the stairs to go down into the basement, which then leads you down to the secret door to the sub-basement where Moon's husband uh, lives. Uh, But even that that barrier, that wall, I feel is is a very visual, stark uh, metaphor for sort of the divide between them. That wall is just amazingly beautiful. It's this sort of cabinetry throughout the entire wall that's golden and it's lit up with all of this priceless china and pots and teapots and uh, just glassware it's, it's just it's really beautiful but then right in the middle of it there's this black entryway that right sends you down into the basement so you are literally going from this beautiful world and you are it's it's this visual uh cue that that everything is golden and, and beautiful and then you are descending into darkness if you go down those stairs so it's 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 just a very visual strong visual uh cue i think for that
0: just a, a quick side note too, when you're looking at that, because you're absolutely right, and it's and it's so noticeable. You know, there's just this black hole in the middle of this gorgeous wall. There are lights and they turn on lights when they go down. But watch, they often, and, and Moon in particular, she'll come up the stairs and she'll turn no lights off. And she'll walk around and things are going, and you can see the wall in the background and then the lights will turn off. And so you learn that for some reason, Uh, the husband has access to being able to turn the lights on and off. And Tim sort of mentioned this earlier, and and this is a little bit off topic and, and I won't go too, too far down it just yet. But I wanted to point it out here simply because... Joe, you were mentioning, you know, checking out what this looks like visually. Watch the lights too. You know, there's so many times in this movie where these lights will be on and then they just sort of shut off and you don't really think about it, right? We don't think about that in movies. Who turned off the light? Who turned on the light? It doesn't matter. As long as we, we, all we care about is it makes sense that the light is on or it makes sense that it's off or or whatever. But if you watch the randomness with which this happens, then to learn that there's someone down there controlling it. It's, it makes it a little bit creepier. You know, there is a creep element to this movie. But anyways, I just kind of wanted to throw that in there. Um, no, that, that,
2: that totally works. And, and actually, speaking of Moon's husband, so I'm going to talk a little bit about, I know we haven't touched on it yet, about Mr. Park's son and the incident that he had when he was a little kid. Right. So on his birthday, I guess, when he was even younger, he was in the kitchen eating some cake. It was dark. Everyone had already gone to bed, and he saw... Uh, Moon's husband's eyes, sort of like peeking out from that darkness, from that golden wall, and it freaked him out so much he went into epileptic shock. It was it was a whole thing. They obviously rushed him to the uh, emergency room. But I I feel even in that it's it's more towards a metaphor of this classified that we're talking about because Moon's husband, someone you know, living underneath the parks. Is coming up, and he's he's a literal boogeyman that's scaring the children of this upper class family. It's a poor person from you know living below them, trying to rise up and you know break in and, and disturb the status. When really all he's trying to do is just get some food because he's he's starving. He's living alone in the basement, and he he's trying to go up for a midnight snack, thinking that everyone's asleep. Um, so it's just it's uh, it, it all I think just plays into itself.
0: Yeah, which and I thought that part was especially interesting because but there's a moment where Moon and her husband discover the Kims and put everything together and the worlds collide, right? And so they're down in the sub-basement and everything. Now, when she's pleading with Mrs. Kim, when Moon is pleading with Mrs. Kim to let her husband stay... You know, she's kind of saying, oh, just bring him food here or there. And, and then and Moon accuses her of saying, so you've been stealing from the park's food to feed your husband. And she says, no, like, how could you? I use my salary to buy his food. But if that were true, why is he creeping up and taking food and scaring the sun and that kind of thing? Right. So so that didn't quite like line up for me. But or maybe he knew it was a birthday and he was just trying to get a piece of cake. Well,
1: there's also the husband, Mr. Park, points this out um, when Moon gets fired, when he is in the car with Mr. Kim and driving. Right. He said, you know, oh, I don't know why she quit, but, you know, I guess I'm glad. Insinuating that he's glad she's gone. There wasn't many problems with her. She never crossed the line, but she ate for two. Boy, so right, if he had to pick one really, thing. Yeah. yeah, that lady could really eat. So he's just attributed this lack you know this this disappearing extra food to the housekeeper just being a pig yeah well (laughs) which he says
0: too like well you know as much as she does if all it costs me is a little extra food no problem like she's working up a sweat but anyways it's it is it's true so i don't i don't know where all that lies but in either case so back to the levels the parks are literally walking on top of moon's husband and and he's looking up every time that he's operating these lights so as he hears the parks going up the stairs he uses the lights to kind of make it illuminate as he's walking and you can't kind of hear him counting in his head onto and then he does the next light one because he knows like his stride or whatever i mean i don't know and he just yells randomly just yells respect up at park um who can't hear him or anything you know like thank you for your provision respect you know and it's it's really weird and creepy that we see him doing this but Again, it's 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 just this idea of this this divide. And not only is he below him, he's just constantly being walked on. We've talked about the toilets being hired. Just all of, like, the visuals are everywhere as to those who have are up here and those who don't are down here, maybe at varying levels, but all still very much below uh, the parks.
2: Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. I, I feel like this whole interaction between Mr. Park and Moon's husband just ties directly to society. Uh, I I feel like this is commentary directly speaking to how some people sort of idolize rich entrepreneurs or CEOs from big companies uh, when in reality these billionaire CEOs don't even know that these people working for them or, you know, other people in society don't even they don't even know that they exist. And they're willing to walk all over the people below them just to make extra money or, you know, be able to provide more dividends or shares to their stakeholders. So it's I I feel like it's it's direct commentary towards that. Right. Uh, Yeah.
1: Again, he has never taken the time to investigate how these lights turn on. The lights just turn on. And to, to that point, exactly, Joe, it's like most of the time someone up there in the upper echelons don't notice until something stops working, right? right? Then they turn their heads and like, oh, that thing didn't happen today that always happens every other day. I guess I need to figure out why. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, I love it.
0: Okay, so there's perhaps no greater illustration of this class divide and everything else than the flood scene that happens in this movie. So the the parks go out on a camping trip because ever since the the tragedy happened and the son saw the quote-unquote ghost, they have gone out of the house every year for Daisong's birthday. And so they go on this camping trip, and uh, when they're gone, um, you know, the, the Kims are there in the house, so on and so forth. Now, the parks come back because it's raining. And their experience of the rainstorm is totally different, right? Daisong is out camping in the backyard, and it's just a little yep. storm, and it's fine. He's in this teepee. It's good. The, the parks are sleeping in the living room, whatever. Now, the Kims, and there's a lot more that happens in the scene. But the Kims are sort of trapped there where the Parks are there. Um, And and eventually, when the Parks fall asleep, the Kims who have been hiding under this table so as not to be caught all together as a family sneak out of the house and run back to their house the basement apartment which is now completely flooded not only with water but human excrement and filth because the the pipes are overflowing and just literal crap is pouring into this house um so you know i love this scene you know visually and everything but again because it's just point blank is like they even experience rain differently on these two sides of the mountain
1: I mean, we know we get the sense from the the Kims that this isn't an abnormality. Um, they they even mention like, "Oh no, we forgot to close the windows." Like that would have right. made any any difference in this case. Um, this happens from time to time. Maybe they are at home and can mitigate the disaster a little bit more than they can. I mean, this could also be you know just an extra special flood. Um, but you get the sense that this happens quite a bit. Um, you know, Frank, you mentioned the teepee, um, this American-made teepee that they make this big deal about pointing <laughs> yeah. out. is It weathers this storm, this deluge, better than their apartment, than the, than the Kim's apartment. Right. So you know, Daisong is out there living up his best life. After his family couldn't hack it in the rain, camping with all their high-end camping gear, he's chilling in the backyard while his mom and dad get frisky on the couch. And meanwhile, this other family is literally having their life ruined by this same rain while this kid is just, like, having a grand old time in his, you know, racist little teepee.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: racist teepee. It's so true. But it's America made, Tim. That's true.
2: That whole scene, though, is beautifully shot to what you were saying, Frank. Uh, Just There's there's even a shot uh, that I just paused it on my TV because it was it was when the whole family's running away from the park's house. They made it out and they escaped and they're trying to make it back to their home. And it's this shot of this stone or brick wall. And then there are these stairs yes. that are going from the top right corner to the bottom left corner. And you see the family sort of running down them, but it's, it's just a really beautifully shot scene where the camera isn't moving, but it's, it's just the family Um, And the first thing that I thought when I saw that, I was like, oh, I wish I could take a picture of that. I I, I wish I knew where that was to just be able to go and take a picture just because everything was just so beautifully shot in that entire rainstorm scene.
0: No, absolutely so. As the Kims, who are just enjoying the storm at the park house, descend back down to their house, which is now totally flooded with human filth, as we mentioned, I feel like this is a, an incredible scene where now they're actually confronted with the reality of their situation.
2: Yeah, that whole scene is just an example of how out of touch the parks are from the plights of people below them and the lower class. I mean, the Kims literally just lost everything to the rain and the flood and human excrement. But now Mrs. Park, the next day, she commented that uh, how lucky they were because of the rain, because now there's no pollution and it's just a beautiful day. And so it's just, yeah, I mean, she's just completely, completely out of touch with with sort of anybody that that isn't in their social level.
0: No, absolutely. And again, like the other, and the reality too of the situation, we see this play out a little bit with Kevin and not to unpack it too much, but we see Kevin throughout the film basically just living in daydreams, right? He's always thinking of ways that things could be better for him, but he never really accomplishes any of them, right? He talks about how all these people who go to school and maybe he wants to go to school, but he doesn't go to school, right? And he doesn't get a job and he doesn't do these certain things and he tries and he, but he schemes his way into things. We saw that with the pizza place thing, Right. Like, he didn't go apply for anything, he just sort of saw an opportunity, he tries to take it. Um, And as he works for the parks, and and they were just there in the house, he was daydreaming and thinking about what life would be like if he married their daughter and moved into the house. And this scene is like a rude awakening for him, and it brings him crashing back down to the realities of his situation. And we see this also play out in a very similar way at the end of the movie right we see him daydream the this possibility of him getting rich and buying the house and helping his dad and we'll talk about that a little bit in just a second and then the camera cuts right back to him sitting in that basement hole you know where nothing has really changed and so he has we see him kind of daydreaming and coming up here and then come crashing back down and this scene really just shows the depths of his of how far they can fall when things aren't working out for them because um, we've, we've never seen them we've seen them bad off but now we see them like very very bad off and it just separates the Kims and the Parks even more uh, than, than we've seen in the past. And so in the end, it's really the precursor, all of this is really the precursor to the final straw that's going to break the Kims. Now, while I totally, absolutely respect the fact that this is a class divide film and all the stuff that we just kind of laid out, when I watched this, I actually saw a totally different story playing out. So I wasn't blind, obviously, to the socioeconomic commentary. Um, What I saw was the story of a man, in this case, Mr. Kim, struggling with his own identity and ideas of masculinity, being disrespected by his family, mainly on the part of his wife, uh, just reach his absolute breaking point.
1: Yeah, it's really the overarching class struggles that, feed into his personal torment, right? it's, It's all of those elements that weigh on him and break him. We know that he's had multiple jobs as a driver. He's worked at a couple of restaurants, and uh, I think there might have even been a cleaners in there. There's a he, this man has had a host of jobs, and um, his wife sort of insinuates that they all go bust, and she can't really keep track of it. Oh, it was after this one, and before you ruined that one, um, and so all of this just feeds into where he is, and he's been able to maintain. This this life for as long as he's can, he he can, but this just accentuates for him um, and pushes him closer to this breaking point.
2: Oh, and I was just going to say that, to to your point, uh, I think it's it's really interesting. One link that I saw in the second walk watch uh, watch through of this movie is that when they first discover Moon's husband downstairs in the basement, they talk about her husband having failed ventures as well. Uh, and oh so- yeah. It's, so it's, he's lost sort of his role as the figurehead of the family as well. And then, you know, Mr. Kim obviously ends up in that same position that he does by the end of the movie. So yeah, it, I mean, it, it all is, you know, links back on itself.
0: Yeah, so when I was watching it, this really, this idea sort of began for me with the opening scene, right? The Wi-Fi and the Kims. So the Kims have been stealing Wi-Fi from one of their neighbors, no password. Um, and all of a sudden they wake up and the and the Wi-Fi is password protected. So Kim's wife's response to finding this out is that she kicks her husband awake. Who's, they're literally sitting on the floor. She's sitting up and she just belts him with her leg and says, the Wi-Fi doesn't work. What are you going to do about it? Right, so it's not, hey babe, the Wi-Fi is not working, or hey, can you figure this out? She just wrecks him, and, and then keeps on trucking, and and he takes it, absorbs it, and wakes up and starts saying, you know, I'll oh, try putting the phone up in all these different places, whatever. Right. An interesting side note actually is that in the same scene, uh, Kim sits down to eat like the last small chunks. He's peeling off portions of moldy bread that aren't that don't have mold on them and eating them, and he sees a stink bug and he flicks it away in disgust. And he's like, oh, these freaking stink bugs. Now this this is important. Important too, because in the scene that we were just talking about, the flood scene, they're hiding underneath this table. They were they were kind of partying up in the Parks house while they were away, and the Parks come home early because of the rain. And so, in order to not be found, they're hiding underneath the the table and that kind of stuff. Um, and while they're hiding under there, the Parks are basically talking about Kim and saying, "Oh, having you know, to his smell, you know, he smells like people who work in the subways or take the subways and all this kind of. It's not old man smell. It's it's just Basically, it's just poor people smell, and it's gross. And so he's just laying there taking this before he pulls himself out. But in the opening scenes, we see him react to the stink bug like hyper negatively. Um,
1: who is who? The stink bug is also not the parasite. <laughs> I'm like, oh hey, this is going to be a bug-borne illness. Right? All right, here we go. Like I'm totally down with this um, bug bug disease movie. Nope,
0: not (laughs) going to happen. So the way that he interacts with this bug is is essentially a mirror image of how the parks will eventually treat him later. He's basically the stink bug to them. And, you know, he smells disgusting and let's flick him away if we can, right?
2: And to your point, you know, they are literally fumigated at the beginning of the movie. Uh, The city pest control person's going around fumigating just the streets and everything and they leave the windows open and they have a coughing fit because they are breathing in all of these fumes so they are literal bugs they are literal pests
0: except kim kim doesn't cough
2: that is true he just sits there
0: keeps folding boxes
1: another instance where i was like oh they're all gonna get the parasite from this fumigation they get sprayed with these (laughs) chemicals and here's the parasite
0: no parasite still not tim spoiler alert they are the parasite no! Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. Um, okay, so, and then this interaction with the bug also feeds the idea, along with, you know, Moon and her husband and their relationship or whatever, that there's always someone higher and someone lower. It doesn't matter how low you are, there's always someone below you, whether it's a stink bug or Moon's husband in the sub-basement. You know, there's always going to be a ladder. There's there's rungs to this, and it's not just a floor and a high. Like there is There are sub-floors to this, which, um, you know, I thought that was interesting too and, and that even someone as low on the bottom as the Kims are could look at this creature and think of them as disgusting right like there's always there's always someone that they can you know treat like garbage yep. so I digress back to the back to the Kim story so next we see the scene where the guy is peeing outside one of their very small windows and and no tim he doesn't have a parasite
2: and uh, another one i thought he had the parasite his <laughs> pee totally had the parasite in it.
0: uh pp parasites he went to the amazon and got one of those little things that swim up your pee ah yeah. fish, <laughs> fish parasites Okay, so when this is happening, the wife immediately starts to chastise him and says, why don't you go put a sign up? And he responds, ah, they'll just do it more. Then the daughter is like, why don't you go shout at him? He's like, "No, I'm not gonna shout at him. This is the scene where Min shows up with the stone and everything and immediately starts getting in the guy's face and the women get all swoony. Now, to be fair, Kim is the one who sees this happening and he's like, oh, your friend Min is so impressive. That's an impressive guy, you know? So he also kind of... Is in awe of how he is handling it, and and maybe, you know, embarrassed or shamed or whatever that he didn't do those things. But, you know, it seems like a positive interaction. But again, the focus is how his family is talking to him, right? That's what struck me. Next, the Kims, uh, as they start to get these jobs, they go to eat at the driver's buffet, and Kim tells his kids to eat their fill, eat as much as they want. Immediately, his wife walks past and says, "But you didn't even pay for it. They did." And and we see this continuing to play out in the movie where Kim finds joy and happiness and, and everything in the smallest provision. They're sitting there and it's like, oh, thank God for the parks and thank God for this or oh, this stone. Right. Those the they get the stone. It's like, oh, the stone is beautiful. Thank you so much. And the wife's immediate response is food would be better. Like the stone sucks. So like everyone around him is just steeped in this negativity. But the wife takes it out a lot on him and is constantly reminding him of these things. So he can't just be like, guys, we're eating in a restaurant. Take whatever you want her she doesn't say yeah this is great thank you so much she says your kids paid for this not you you're not a man so this next moment was a little less obvious and i only thought about this later on as i kept sort of analyzing all these things but it's when park and kim are driving or kim is driving park and park says something about his wife you know something like one of her shortcomings or whatever and it's no big deal um but kim responds to him and says but you still love her right and Park laughs this off and you know at first he seems a little bit agitated, but then he kind of laughs as if Kim is sort of tiptoeing on this line he's always talking about right like oh the servants haven't crossed the line yet, right. But in a way, this is Kim emphasizing with another or empathizing rather with another man and you know, kind of saying like, yeah you know my wife's the worst, but we still love them, right And this this is sort of illuminated later on. Um, and, I'm, and I, that's why I mentioned this because there's sort of this big moment that's coming up now, There's a massive moment. We already talked about where the parks go camping and the Kims are hanging out at the house. They're all sitting on the floor and they're eating and it's just a total garbage mess, Um, which is funny to me too because it's like you can take the Kims out of the basement, right? But you can't take the basement out of the Kims. (laughs) So it doesn't matter how nice the house is. They're just like slumming it on the ground. And Kim says, you know, for a moment, like this is their home and it's so cozy. And and, and like I said, everything is always so positive for him. And, and that, you know, sure, it's not his house, but for the moment, and I mean, you know, in all intents and purposes, it is his house. And isn't that great? But his wife, who's always there to slap him back down, and in this case, she immediately starts going on this rant about how, you know, if the Parks came home, you know, like, hey, kids, you know, if the Parks came home, just watch. Your dad would run and hide like a roach. And in this moment, you see Kim lose it. And for the first time he sort of whispers under his breath he's like you know i'm just so effing tired of this and then he slaps all this food and glass off the table grabs his wife by the shirt and cocks back like he's going to wreck her face and then he stops and plays it off as a joke but what's also interesting is that when he does this mrs kim doesn't even flinch that is the depths of disrespect that she has for her husband like him losing his mind about to punch her in the face she doesn't even bat an eye like she thinks it's even possibly real because she doesn't think it's almost like you're not man enough to hit me in the face you know what i mean and so you know kim plays it off as a joke and and whatever and then she even makes the point of like you know if if it wasn't a joke and you were serious i would destroy you and then immediately like does this little like finger grip thing thing that twists his hand back but you know anyways it that was just like i mean it's this is huge huge moment
1: i just absolutely love the this scene and then it has like two counterpart scenes where we actually get to see each of the families spend time on this couch and on this room uh in this room it speaks to the overarching socioeconomic plot line that we've been talking about, but it also emphasizes where Mr. Kim stands with his wife, as opposed to the other two husbands, you know, as Frank just, uh, you know, talked about with how the, how the, the Kims are spending their time. Again, you can't take the basement out of them. Um, They have this whole beautiful house. They're just doing the same thing they did at their house. They're eating junk food, dog treats. The, The daughter is eating dog treats and they get drunk. And, They spend their whole time talking about the parks. They're still so obsessed with the parks, but they're not living their best life while they could be. They could be eating all this food and drinking all this, but they're just doing their same thing. When we see Moon and her husband in this same room on the same couch, we get a little flashback of them enjoying their time. One of those rare times where he can, her husband gets to come up from the basement and they listen to the records that the parks have right. and they drink tea. They sit there all sophisticated straight on the couch and they sip tea and they dance and they enjoy the sun. Um, and then in this moment when they are chastising Moon and her husband are actually chastising the Kims for not, you know, for to, like, why are you still so obsessed with the parks and like living you know just enjoy what you can at this moment you guys are fools she's massaging her husband he still has her total respect even though he lives in the basement and it doesn't work she's giving this man a massage rubbing his legs down right, yeah. and while they're holding the the Kim's at bay well, you know under threat to, to call uh, the Park family and, and expose them um, so you know Mr. Kim is sitting there watching this man who is lowlier than him get totally catered to and worshipped by his wife even though she's rubbing his feet and his legs like that is the lowest of the low and she's still honoring her husband and then you see later on the parks are on the same couch while the the Kims are hiding underneath the table and they're you know make this big deal about sleeping on the couch the parks are roughing it sleeping on this couch you know they've got their beds upstairs but they're gonna rough it and sleep on the hard couch where the kims have kind of taken naps and like spent their entire time they didn't even go up to the master bedroom if you don't have a bed in your basement apartment aren't you gonna go we see kevin kind of do it spend some time in his girlfriend's bed but like they don't make a beeline for the giant i'm sure california king that's up in the park's bedroom like it's true you even
0: see mrs kim the first thing she does when the parks leave is take a nap on that couch
1: yeah and so like they're just kind of roughing it and then they get a little frisky and mr park gets in on you know starts caressing his wife and she resists at first but ultimately submits to her husband and all while they're ragging on Mr. Kim for the way he smells like a radish. And, um, you know, they're just kind of still obsessed with them. But she still submits to her husband and it's totally eating at Mr. Kim for multiple things, you know, the radish smell. And then these wives that are just still submissive to their husbands. Uh, it's it's totally painful for him.
0: Right. Where his wife doesn't even fear him punching her in the face when he like he's a second away from doing that yeah. you know so okay so all of that has sort of played out and, and then here's here's the big finale to this thread this is what really got me right yeah so the next morning after the flood the, the kims have lost everything and now the parks are going to throw an impromptu birthday party for their son like this garden party right and they ask, uh, they ask Mr. Kim to come and, and drive Mrs. Park around to run the errands and that kind of stuff. And then they come back. And and Mr. Park has asked Mr. Kim to dress up like a Native American to play some kind of, you know, game at the party. Like he's gonna attack Jessica, who's carrying the cake, and she's gonna be like the cake princess and all this kind of stuff, right? Now, and a lot of people have pointed to this as a sign of, and and there were a few things I looked on online and whatever, and they were just like, oh, this is like a deep disrespect to Mr. Kim and all this kind of stuff. And I don't see it that way at all, because the important Mm -hmm. thing to remember is Mr. Park is also dressed like a Native American, the same outfit, the same costume, and he's also going to run out and play this game. So he's subjecting himself to the exact same treatment. It's not like, oh, I'm going to sit back and you're the savage. No, he's like, we're the two guys, we're going to dress up, and we're going to gonna play this role for my kids party right in yeah. this moment they're almost equals especially in the eyes of mr kim i think and so um you know kim has lost everything he has nothing less he's been struggling with how his wife sees him and now how must she see him when they literally have nothing and he was just driving them around for the errands we talked about that he turns to park in that moment I feel like in that moment, he's hoping to find a friend or a peer that he can just sort of vent these frustrations after having lost everything. And he says, your wife likes parties and surprises. And then Park responds with, yeah, but she's really focused on this one. Then Kim's next line is, you're trying your best too. And it's not, you know, at no point does he's like, is he commenting on the fact that, you know, he's got him dressed up like this. He's saying, you know, hey, you're trying, You know, you're trying your best to. Park then responds to this, reminding him that, oh, you're being paid to be here. Like, he took it as an insult, right? Mm -hmm. But I think, and especially when you see, right, and we talked about how this is visual movie, but when you see how this line is written, you know, I think Kim was just looking for someone to empathize with him. And he's pouring out his own truth in that moment. He's trying his best But it's, you know, how he's trying his best, but it's not enough to give his wife all that she wants. Like, he's trying Mm. his best, but yet it's not enough, right? Like, you know, your wife likes these parties, and he's like, yeah, but but you're trying your best, you know? And and so he doesn't get that feedback back from her. No matter how good they get, the Kims, um, it's never going to be enough. So I Mm -hmm. genuinely believe that when Kim snaps, and eventually what ends up happening in the end is moon's husband so so they <laughs> when they're discovered and the and the parks come home they basically throw moon and her husband back into the cellar uh, they tie up uh, they tie up the husband moon tries to make a last minute escape the wife kind of kicks her down just sort of to get her down and close the door, she ends up falling pretty hard, hitting her head. They also rubbed a bunch of peaches on her so they could get the evidence <laughs> that she had taken, so she's also going into like anaphylaxis and so she ends up dying. And she tells the husband like remember it was this woman who did it. And so the next morning during the party, the the husband comes up from the basement with eyes on killing. Well, the next day, because they left these these loose ends down there, we talked yeah. about how the sun comes with the stone. He's going to go down there and try to bash in their heads so that they can sort of get rid of the last of the evidence. Um, that backfires, and Moon's husband ends up, you know, essentially leaving Kevin for dead. And then he walks out into the party looking for Kim's wife. To kill her for killing his wife. Um, Mm -hmm. The daughter ends up getting in the way first. He stabs her in the chest, which Kim responds to that. And then Kim's wife comes running in. He sees her. He turns on her, but she gets the upper hand after all. She's as badass as she promised she was. And stabs him with a Texas de Brazil sword covered in assorted (laughs) meats. And, And she ends up killing him. And so, you know, so when Kim, and then what ends up happening is now, the, upon seeing the ghost who has come out of the basement to start ravaging his birthday party, Daisung goes into immediate, you know, epileptic shock and, and starts having this seizure, which we've already found out earlier on, you know, you have 15 minutes before he's dead, right? That's what yep. they sort of told us with the first one. And so the parks go into go mode. They scoop up the kid. They're trying to get to the hospital. Park starts shouting at Kim, get the car, you gotta drive us. But Kim is like wholly focused on his daughter who's dying. And the parks don't know that they're related. But somehow when Park, when Mr. Park sees that happening, he just says, throw me the keys, right? Like, okay, you're not gonna drive me. I get it. Well, I don't know what's going on. I don't care. I gotta get my kid to the hospital throw me the keys, he throws the keys, it ends up falling as Mrs. Kim and the husband, Moon's husband are battling it out on the ground, and the keys get stuck underneath, he goes to pick up the keys, he makes a face because, you know, Moon's husband is super smelly, and we've already talked Stinky about all, dead this, body. all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's probably crapped himself. He's also been living in the sub-basement for years. He doesn't smell great. But this is a sore subject, right? We already know that this is a sore subject for Mr. Kim. And so when he reacts to the smell of the man, Kim loses it, grabs the knife, turns Park around, stabs him right in the chest, kills him. It's easy to say that this is all like culminating because of how he treats him. A lot of people have talked about the fact that you know, Park wants to, you know, he is, is so focused on his own family without giving any regard or consideration to the other people who've been injured. Right. And 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 especially in, the, in this case, Kim's daughter. Right. Jessica. Mm-hmm. And, and and all of that is true. And it's not to take away from any of that. But for me, in this moment, he stabs Park and he turns around and he just straight dead eyes his wife. Yeah. And his wife just dead eyes him back. And and in that moment that I, I absolutely believe that was a, a straw breaking and that that hurt him and all that kind of stuff. But it was just another sign of disrespect, disrespect that he's been bearing from his own wife and his own family for God knows how long. And when he kills him, he leaves. We also see later on he goes and he hides in the sub basement yep. and theoretically there for forever when he's down there he he writes a letter to his son and in that he talks about how remorseful he is and we see him like seeing park's picture and just crying over it right but in this letter and everything he never mentions his wife he doesn't say to his son tell your mother i'm okay or or you know let her know i'm fine he writes this letter only to his son it's almost as if like i don't care in a way i'm free of this woman I'm the king down here, you know, and and it, it's this weird, for me watching it, it was this very odd combination of imprisonment, being worse off than you were before, you know, the swapping of roles, the trend continues, there's always going to be a sub-basement dweller, there's always going to be a kin, there's always going to be a park, and, and whether it's them or somebody else, it, it doesn't matter, someone's going to fill those roles, Yep. And and all of that is in there. But at the same time, on top of that, it was also a man who almost is finally delivered from this misery that he's been living in because down there, no one has any expectations of him but himself. And he's yep. almost content with anything he has, right? You got to believe that even the smallest can of tuna or you know, there's, a, there's a line where um, when the parks leave and some German family moves in, he writes this letter and he says... You know, I sneak up at night and I take my life in my hands to try to get food, but I was thrilled that the Germans don't just eat meat and sausage, right? Yeah, like, beer,
1: beer and sausage. Beer and sausage, like yes. And, yeah. But
0: to him, it was like, he gets fruit today. That's amazing right. to him, you know? And no one's saying, oh, but where's my Wi-Fi? And oh my, where's my this? So this just really struck me crazy hard as like this, this massive thing that was in this movie that... I don't know. I don't know how much that registers to a lot of folks, but to me, that was like the main through line. Um, and yeah. I couldn't get over it. And and I thought, and even if it's nothing, even if it wasn't even intentional, which I find that very hard to believe. But even if it wasn't, the fact that you can watch this movie and get so much more than just the obvious is a yeah. massive testament to how well done this is.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's just so much to, to, to cover and touch on. And you just look at... there's so many different threads to pull and it sort of goes back to a little bit like 1917 too. You know, when we talked about kind of that switch up in the middle where, Oh, the main character of this movie is not who I thought it was. It's not going to, it's not going to be, we're not going to follow this character who we were earlier set up. You you kind of led to believe it's going to be this, you know, Kevin's the driving force in this movie. It's not, you really, this movie switches and you get this, this, this thread of Mr. Kim and it's really him, his story. He takes this central role in the, the second and third acts of this movie. And it just, it shifts the way the movie itself shifts, um, each act is really unique and, and and different the way, the way it shifts, but that through line is just really, it's, it's just hammered home by all of the other surface things for sure.
0: Yeah. So, okay. This, this episode is, is crazy long and it just has to be, it just has to be, but, in lieu of kind of breaking down the third act and all the kind of little things that happen there, you know, watch that. A, a lot of stuff happens in it. You know, in that final garden party scene, there's a, there's a, there's even more, and, and ends tie up. and And I'll kind of leave that for you to to enjoy as as you watch it. Um, we'll touch on a few quick things, but I kind of want to use this last little moment to also talk about a few things that are a little bit irksome or even just interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just generally speaking, for me, the one thing I really want to touch on is is Morse code and these lights. Mm. So so we know that the sub-basement dweller, the husband, has access to these lights and you see them turning on and off. He uses them to send Morse code messages to the boy, right? Yeah. I would assume saying like, oh, I'm a ghost or oh, I haunt this house because he's been busted, right? Now he's got to keep <laughs> this right. kid quiet. Um, and no one's going to believe that the house is haunted. But that doesn't ever really amount to anything. Even when the, the the moon and his wife are attacked, he sends a Morse code with his forehead because he's tied up and he's slamming his forehead into these lights and the son who's camping out in the lawn is writing down what you would assume is like, help me, but he, he translates it as like, hope my or whatever. Also too, he's sending Morse code in English. I mean, I don't know if they have Morse code in I mean, I imagine that they do, but the kid's translating Morse code into English, reading English. Like there's a lot of stuff happening there yeah. that you're asking of. A first grader or whatever to sort of to, to figure out it seems like a lot the other thing too is the fact that this light is flickering bananagrams there's a scene too during the day where the parks are up at the table kind of hanging out maybe the guy in the basement thinks that they're done for the night and he's sending a little morse code message to the kid just in case but the light starts flickering and mrs park makes a comment like oh there goes that light again it's always on the fritz or whatever how have you not had, like, I, I I implore anybody to tell me how long it would take for a freaking light in your house to be flashing like crazy. You've tried every, you've changed the bulb, you've done all the things that you can think to do. How long does it take before you bring an electrician out, right? And how long does it take for that electrician to be like, okay, there's a light switch here. You said that these lights turn on automatically? This isn't wired to do that. But here's what I do see. Here's like an offshoot of this wire and it runs down into, did you know this house had a sub basement a lot of these rich people houses have these you know for like hiding around for like north korea you didn't know you had this let's pop this bad boy open because i gotta go down there and see why this is on the fritz because you know you'd be able to turn on the lights from down there if you were hiding from the north korean what there's a grown man living down here covered <laughs> in his own feces like the fact that this hasn't played out in the course of years is insane to me right and on top of that when Kim takes over and lives down there, he sends like a 12-page letter to his son via Morse code at night with these new Germans. And I'll tell you what, man, the Germans are nothing but observant. So it's like, I, you know, like you're telling like uh, generations of families live in this house. No one recognizes that all the idiots who live in the basement type Morse code messages to each other. Like, I don't understand. This whole idea seems crazy to me and i did not and and literally it exists it exists only for the end scene where the son goes back to the house hiding in the woods and translates his father's message to him that is the only reason this exists he can't get a message back to him he can't do anything it's just so that we the viewer can see what has happened and in, in a way that somehow makes contextual sense but I can't get over the fact that you're asking me to think that no one's called an electrician. I don't understand.
1: Uh, to be honest with you, I went to bed last night. Our, our fan, ceiling fan in our bedroom ha- is uh, remote controlled. That's the only way. If the light switch is on, you've got a remote control that turns the fan and turns the lights on. Fancy.
0: Four Clearly, Tim lives on top of a hill. And uh, here yeah, I, I the, am recording in my basement. Right. Remote controlless. <laughs>
1: So I turn the fan on, put it on low, start watching a movie. It's like 10 o'clock. All of a sudden, the fan speeds up. Suddenly it's on high. And I just enough to pull my headphones off. I'm like, what? How'd that happen? And as I do that, the light turns on by itself. And I'm like, okay. What? So the the, the, the remote's in the bed. This has happened before. I must have rolled over on it. Look to the sides. No remote. Oh my God. Look behind me on the nightstand. The remote is way out of reach all by itself
0: him what the nuts
1: there's apparently a man in the sub basement
2: of my house messing with my ceiling fan that's the only <laughs> thing i can think of. well they do say in the movie that a ghost in the house brings wealth so
0: well know. i'm super glad i'm poor and i hope i stay poor forever <laughs>
2: <laughs> i don't want any
1: part of that I, that's a good way to that is a good throwaway that does sort of explain the fact that if they just attribute it to this ghost that their son said maybe they don't want to mess with the lights because the ghost is just gonna keep them wealthy I guess that's that's a good throwaway that I missed yeah.
0: Um. Any last any last thoughts before we start to bring this to a close? Yeah, I, things that jumped I mean, out at you guys.
1: Yeah the the ending we really didn't get into but the ending is for lack of a better term I couldn't think of, it's 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 cheeky right it mm. fits with this idea that that bong is messing with us you know with the metaphor stuff the idea that he's been trying to throw us off we see this sudden cut you know kevin sits down to write this letter to his dad you haven't quite processed yet how he's going to get this letter back to his dad right he found this morse code and you're like oh yeah he's writing the letter to his dad get him you know get him an idea on the plan awesome um and you kind of cut to this scene of kevin and his mom moving into the house they suddenly have possessions and you're like well oh, Oh, this must be a couple years down the line they've got stuff now um you know dad's coming up out of the basement if they had ended it there which apparently they toyed with I would have been really upset and I think I might have just thrown this movie out mm-hmm. and they because it, it seems like they wanted to kind of go you know a little sopranos on it like they're just gonna do this cut and you're gonna see Kevin moving into the house and you're like was that real is that just his daydreaming
0: plan oh, i'm so glad yeah
1: yeah and I, I just i i just i'd love how you're just sort of settling into this and you're like huh and it cuts you right back to him in the basement still writing this letter and he's like no i'm gonna get this and all you're gonna have to do dad is walk out of the basement and i'm gonna get there somebody did some research somewhere that ends up showing that it would have taken Kevin 500 plus years to earn enough money to buy that house. Right. So his plan is off the bat crazy. Not to mention the fact that he has no way of getting this letter to his father. He'd have to con his way back into the house and slip it under the door. There's just no logical way for him to get this back to his dad. There's no windows in this this bunker basement. His, yeah, his dad is, will the, never know this.
0: This is never a plan that will come to fruition. This is him and it, just sort yep, of like a diary.
1: It just plays into his dad's hands of you know, having a plan is just never the right way to go.
2: Yeah, and I completely agree with you. If this movie had ended on that really positive tone that the rest of the movie just did not have, it would have completely just sunk the movie. It, it, it would have, I think, completely ruined it for me. Uh, but just the fact that the audience knows that Kevin's never going to reach that goal uh, just speaks to what the movie is is trying to really portray and something that I also found very interesting, um, again, the second time I watched this movie, was that the opening scene is exactly the same as the ending scene. Right. You have a shot of the window in the in the Kim's family, you know, sub basement apartment, and it sort of pans down uh, to Kevin, and then that's exactly how the movie ends. It's that same shot, only you know, now it's night, I guess, and it's snowing, but but. I mean, the rest of it's exactly the same. And it just goes to show you that despite everything that this family has gone through, nothing has changed. They're exactly in the same position, if not worse, uh, because now uh, Jessica's dead. Uh, Mr. Kim is hiding in the basement. But Mrs. Kim and Kevin are just now living alone in the same position they were, were, they were before, with two fewer incomes to try to you know make ends meet. And it's just—it's a very depressing tone, uh, but at the same time, I loved it and I thought it was incredibly refreshing. So,
0: yeah. Then you would—I don't know how much of uh, Bong Joon-ho stuff you've seen otherwise, but he's—he's he's, apparently that's what he's known for—is the characters ending up exactly where they started off. And there's several movies he's done that have done that same thing. But i, I agree with both of you wholeheartedly. That ending is perfection when he lays out this whole plan we this is the culmination of Kevin the Daydreamer and we didn't talk about this a lot but there's a line where the dad basically tells Kevin like Kevin's like what's the plan dad when they've locked these people in and they're sleeping in the gym when they've lost their house and he says dad what's the plan and I and, I think he even says like he has a plan and uh, and the dad says the the only good plan is no plan at all because life never works out the way you want and plans never pan out and and this is a running theme throughout the film you know there's a scene where they forge the documents and Kevin says dad I don't see this as forgery I don't see this as a lie or a crime you know I'm gonna go to this school next year and this is I just printed the papers out a little bit early and the dad's response is oh so you have a plan. Right, and then there's a scene where they're daydreaming about him marrying the daughter, and all of a sudden he's like, "Oh, so you have a plan?" And then come to find out his dad's like, "Plans are nothing. Plans always fail. Plans never come true." And so all these times that he said this to his son, he's essentially kind of been mocking him, being I mean, like, "Okay, yep. we'll see how your plans play out." And in the end, Kevin, right, knowing this, knowing this, and his dad—these are these are probably some of the final words that his dad said to him where plans never work out, the only good plan is no plan. And, And Kevin opens up his response to his father's letter that he decodes, which, like Tim just said, he can never get to him. He can never deliver this letter. His father will never read these words. His father will die Morse coding this letter to his son in the hopes that one day he gets it, not even knowing that he got it already, right? Yep. And so so Kevin writes this letter and he opens it up with, I have a plan and I'm going to make this money. And he knows that will never come true. And when the camera yep. comes back, it is gorgeous. It's heartbreaking. It is, But it's in tone with everything. So it also, in a weird way, feels kind of good this movie's incredible, and this ending's amazing. Yep. All that being said, final final question, little thing that we kinda do sometimes. Tim, and and Joe, Mm -hmm. I know you haven't heard 1917 yet, you haven't seen it yet, but Tim, we have now seen Parasite and 1917, and I feel like we need to put the final cap on the question that we left hanging in the 1917 episode that would've gone unanswered forever were it not for the man sitting here with us today, Joe. Which I feel like I got to say, too, There, you know, Joe is being so kind. He's laughing. He's emoting. He's kind of nodding his affirmations. None of you can hear that because Joe has placed himself on mute because his house is super empty and there's a wicked echo and he's being real nice so that we don't hear this crazy echo going on. But just, you know, I know people are going to listen to this and be like, Frank wouldn't shut up. Tim is talking. Joe's not saying a word. They're the worst hosts. He's, you know, poor Joe. This is all, this is Joe's sacrifice for the greater good of the audio quality. Um, he's cracking up now, guys. Believe me when I tell you this. this okay, is
1: podcast, podcast in the time of social distances. <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. Um, we'll have to have Joe back when this is uh, when we can do this a little better so that you guys can see like it's really playing out well. Okay, so we got to put a final cap on this. We left this hanging, uh, and thanks to Joe, now we can do it, Tim. Between the two films, and we said this, we couldn't say, we were like, man, 1917 won a few awards. I feel like it should have been Best Picture, but I can't say that because we haven't, we couldn't say definitively because we didn't see Parasite. Which one do you believe should have won Best Picture? Parasite or 1917?
1: I'm going to go straight out there and I'm going to say I'm sticking with 1917. Um, Ooh. I just both movies were complete surprises. Both movies were absolutely nothing like what I thought going in. We touched on this in nineteen seventeen, you know, big war epic, and then it was kind of anything but a a giant war epic. It was there, but it was about this one guy, and you know the same thing with with the parasite. I'm waiting for the monster movie to kick in, Um, but really. I just, 1917 decimated me. I mean, it made me feel things for days. I I think I had Joe's reaction to Parasite with 1917, where I just sat there on my couch afterwards, just exhausted, wiped out, fatigued from that movie. I get Parasite, I enjoyed it a lot, and I think I could argue they are on many levels kind of the same but i'm not sure it stays with me the way that 1917 did my one big question remains and frank you kind of touched on this before that i don't know if this movie wasn't subtitled would i have been drawn into this story would i have concentrated so intently on it um you just you have to it inherently demands your full attention and you are pulled into this movie because you have to because you you are reading this movie does this create a larger air of it being you know a, a, a great movie because you're forced to pay attention to it I, I don't know that's that's a question i want to throw out there you know it, it it demands so much of your attention just because of how it's made um that you know other movies fight for your attention right you, a lot of times you say right. you sit there and you're like I couldn't, you know, I was so drawn in and, you know, they they have to do that. I just, I don't know if this movie wasn't subtitled. Does that change something? That's a, that's just, you know, kind of a hypothetical. I, I don't, I don't, I
0: don't know. I don't know. So that's all. That's good point. I've struggled with this. I, th- I think before I make up my mind, like even literally right now, I'm bouncing it back and forth. I think initially after the first watch of Parasite, I think I was still pretty, firmly rooted that 1917 would be the winner you know another interesting thing before i make up my final mind is that the title parasite and we talked about how this isn't you know this isn't the movie you thought it was going to be and on top of that too it's also not the commentary i expected i I think once i realized that this was going to be a class film or a socioeconomic commentary and all the things that it is i felt like i thought that the clear parasites were going to be the wealthy in the sense of like, you know, them draining on the, you know, the, the servants or the workers or whatever the situation may be. But essentially, like I think of parasites negatively. And so I felt like instinctively, I wanted to think about the wealthy negatively. And there are obviously things that they do that we don't like. And there's things that Kim's do that we do like and vice versa, or whatever the situation may be. Because it seems to me anyway, and, and I'm sure people feel differently, that the real parasites are in fact the Kims and, and Moon and her husband. They're the ones who've invaded the body, quote, of the parks. They've entered in the home and they've worked and weaseled their way in in order to feed off of them. You know, the parks are paying them and stuff, but, you know, they are these sort of basement dwellers that kind of sneak up and, and, and in the end, you know, don't resolve or leave until they've killed their host, right yeah. and so you know of all the people who end up dead i don't know it's it's interesting that park ends up dead and and who knows maybe even the sun i don't i don't know did they get the sun to the hospital in 15 minutes that that's a big question mark i don't i don't know so i thought that was really interesting and i think that sort of speaks to what i'm going to say next which is i think i'm going to say that parasite wins best picture Mm -hmm. And I think I'm going to go with that simply because, yes, 1917 isn't the movie that I expected, but Parasite isn't the movie I expected in literally every possible way, right? It's not a creature feature. And then I'm like, okay, well, we're going to just talk about how awful rich people are. And it kind of isn't even that either. It's not. And at all. Yeah. and even the even the what you might classify as the traditional protagonists or our heroes in this also are failures and they they do wicked things and and sort of live off of others and and, and, then, and when confronted with someone who is theoretically in their same class, immediately place themselves higher right? than mm. Moon and her husband. They're trash to them and, and dispensable. They're going to kill them. They don't matter. So instead of lifting them up, even to their level, they kick them down. Right, so they're like, they're evil in their own way. And so, so that also stands out to me when I think about all this because it's like, this movie is literally nothing I expected in every possible way. On top of that, this movie is like 12 different things In one movie, but at no point does it feel overdone, overwhelming, overworked, oppressive. Nothing feels overly confusing. Yes, there's some things I don't dig about it. Yes, the Morse code is stupid. And yes, all this kind of stuff. And most movies have that. But the achievement to be able to pack so much into these two hours and change and not have it feel we we talked about a movie we talked about for love of the game where they just you know put all these storylines into a shotgun and then blasted you in the face with it and none yes. of it plays out none of it works out all of it sucks this movie throws the kitchen sink at you but it makes sense and it's intriguing yep. and with every single watch the replayability of this movie is astronomical right yeah you know and so like i feel like i'll watch 1917 again and i'll get a lot out of it and i'll enjoy different aspects of it but there's not a ton of depth which we talked about as a positive right mm-hmm. you can't hide in complexity it tells yep. one thing and it tells it very beautifully and very well this movie i mean i don't know i i can't get over that and and it's lingered yep. with me so i think at the end of the day it's i think it's the winner i think i would go parasite and i and i don't think 1917 was snubbed
1: Awesome.
0: Joe, you haven't seen 1917, but any any thoughts, any any last wrap up things?
2: No, I mean, I completely agree with you. The the replayability of this movie and just how how much you get out of it with every viewing is incredible, and that's what I really love about this movie. Just every every time you watch it, you may pick up on different things or different little aspects that you just didn't pick up on before and it's just that's what I think this movie really makes it so beautiful
0: so this seems a little bit redundant but we're going to do it anyway Um, with all of that final ratings would you recommend this and what would you rate it and I guess let's throw in a little twist not only would you recommend it is it is it a rental a purchase like is this a must buy is this a must rent is it a watch for free on Hulu if you've got it would you recommend this and what do you rate it Let's start with uh, let's start with our guest, Joseph.
2: Uh, I, ooh, that's a good question. I would, I think, I want to give this a nine out of ten. I absolutely love this movie, just because of everything that we've talked about uh, so far. Uh, I, I really love movies that have a lot of depth, and you're really able to analyze them. And this one just far surpasses most movies in in terms of that uh, content. In terms of buying movies, uh... You might be the wrong guy to ask. Yes, I I am exactly the wrong guy to ask for this because (laughs) I do not buy movies. (laughs) Which
0: is crazy to me. (laughs) So, So, yeah.
2: So, but if I did want to buy a movie... This would be one of the few movies that I would want
0: to buy. Ooh, now that <laughs> you know what I will say, this Joseph, me saying I would buy a movie means nothing. I've bought twelve movies in the time that we've been recording this podcast, <laughs> so like that is not a that's not a, a you know a selling point coming from me. But I think coming from someone who doesn't buy movies, saying that if they did buy a movie, it would be this one, that's huge.
2: Yeah, no, I I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So
0: all right, Tim, what about you?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, I'm gonna go eight out of ten. It's fun. It's funny. It's surprising. It's very well done. Um, it's beautiful. It's intriguing. I really like the characters. I really like all the twists. I mean, there's each, each act is almost brought on by another twist, right? It does require some effort to watch, though. Like I've said, you know, you have to sit down and pay attention. You can't pull your fate. You can't somebody you know gets you grabs your attention somebody you know your phone rings or something you can't just be like oh i heard those 5 minutes i'm i'm good i i was trying to rewatch it this afternoon and i was wearing my headphones so just natural inclination i was like oh i need a glass of water i'm going to go get a glass of water and i walk away and i realize i have no idea what they're saying <laughs> so yep. i have to go back and i got to you know rewind a couple times that It's not really a negative, but it's also not really a positive. And I think that would color my, would I buy this movie? Because the movies that I own are movies that I know by heart. And so I could throw them on in the background. And if I'm doing something else, just by the fact that I have listened to it for two hours, I feel like I have seen that movie because visually I know in my head. And so I just, I don't think I would buy this um, because it just, it requires the time to watch, you are going to put in the two hours to watch this movie because you're going to read it. So it's not not a negative, not a positive, but uh, it's definitely worth a watch. Definitely watch it. Pull a Frank, get Hulu for two months, watch the crap out of this movie. um, And then a couple of other things and then, you know, move on and then maybe watch it the next time you get Hulu. I don't know how long it'll be there, but you know,
0: and I agree. So for me, I give this movie a nine. I think this movie's a nine out of 10 um for all the reasons that we talked about and in spite of the reasons that we talked about so yeah, yeah. um you know this this movie's fantastic I highly highly recommend it don't shy away from this one like i did honestly it's yep. I, I wish i would have seen it sooner so obviously we recommend it obviously we all love it i would agree that i wouldn't buy this movie um so maybe maybe that's the flip side right like joe thinks it's so good he would buy it for me who buys anything i maybe wouldn't buy this one at least not yet simply because you know and it's not the time commitment you know i'll You know, if I'm watching Joe Dirt, I've got to sit down and do nothing else. Like, anything I watch entrances me. But for me, it's more of the state of mind that you need to be in and the Mm. state of mind that this movie will put you in. You know, this is not light fare. There are light moments. There are comedic moments. But this is a heavy, dense film that you need to digest afterwards and you will process for a while afterwards. This, You know, and I find that the movies I really rewatch a ton are the ones that are just light, good, you know, enjoyable. Yes. That doesn't necessarily mean a comedy, but just something that's easy to take in, you know, does what it's supposed to do, and then I move on with my day. You know, yeah. this one sits and lingers, and so I don't see myself being in that state of mind often. And and mm-hmm. when I am, and if I'm craving it, if it's available, I'll watch it, maybe I'll rent it again, or maybe if buying it is like $7.99, I'll, I'll do that. But I think simply for the reason that in terms of replayability for content, it's there, man. Like if, if yes. you if you enjoy a deep film that makes you think and you like watching that kind of stuff often buy this movie, this will feed you for a long time. Um, yep. But if you are more in the state of mind of like, man, you know, if, if you find yourself saying, I love this movie, I really want to watch it, but I'm not in the place for it right now then maybe don't buy this one because this takes once you've seen it once in particular to to bring yourself to watch it again takes a little bit of doing so mm-hmm. um okay i think that wraps up this episode guys finally yeah. i you know i don't know i might have to do a two-parter on this one because yeah. i don't want to cut any of it um right. So so with that, let's start bringing this home. Our next episode is going to be a uh, pause rewind. So, you know, we'll, we'll kind of do what we normally been doing there. So two weeks from now will be our next deep dive episode for a film. Went back and forth on a couple of options before we realized, holy crap, our next deep dive episode is going to air on July 2nd, which is coming right into 4th of July weekend. Go America. Yep. So I think we're going to switch gears, and instead of doing the movie we were going to do, and I'm not going to say what it is because we'll do it next, is uh, we're going to do Independence Day, guys. We're going to do yeah. Independence Day. I don't know the year. It's in the 90s, uh, but starring Will Smith, Jeff Goldblum, and uh, and we're going to make that our 4th of July episode. We might sneak in a little uh, Independence Day resurgence. We'll see uh, what we can handle, but uh, for now... Definitely plan to uh, rent or check out, I'm sure most of us own it, uh, Independence Day, throw it on, give it a watch, and we'll be talking about that one July 2nd. But before that, we'll have another Rewind up epi- episode for you. No pre-watching homework required. Just come and uh, we'll give you some lovely recommendations. Let's see, jo- Joe, thank you so much, obviously yeah, for joining us here today, but for making this life-changing recommendation. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. I had an absolute blast and I, I, am enjoying, I'm loving the show. So keep it up.
0: Oh, thanks buddy. Well, hopefully you'll join us again. He's nodding. Yes guys. (laughs) And now he's laughing yeah with that uh as always follow us it's easier now social media on instagram follow us on instagram at pause reviews and uh obviously the website you can reach out to us uh, there's a contact form on there it's PauseReviews.com, or you can email us PauseReviews at gmail.com so many ways to interact with us send us more recommendations like joe and yeah, we we love we love hearing what you guys are thinking. We love having this conversation, so uh, it's why we do what we do. Other than that, we wish you guys the greatest and happiest of weeks slash weekends. Considering that this will air on a Thursday, and right. uh, look forward <laughs> to hanging with you on the next one. As always, I'm your boy Frank. This is Tim, and we will. Ca- oh wait, and Joe, and Joe. Say your name, Joe. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> We'll catch you guys on the next one. See ya. Peace.